name is Marie LeConte. Welcome to The Bunker. If you've listened to our podcast before, you may know that I'm French. What you may not know, however, is that when I was a teenager growing up in Notts, there was only one place I was dreaming of. It wasn't London, Manchester or Liverpool, but Southend-on-Sea. While Essex was, to many people, a haven for shocking tabloid headlines and right-wing politics, I only knew it as the home of the junk club. Back in 2006, it was the place to be, full of exciting bands, well-dressed teens and everyone who was cool on MySpace and beyond. This is why I'm thrilled to be joined today by Tim Burrows, journalist and author of The Invention of Essex. Hi, Tim. Hi, Marie. So, of course, we'll get into the politics of it all in a moment, but as someone who grew up in Southend, did you party with the horrors and these new Puritans and all the proto-hipsters? I did indeed, guilty as charged. It's kind of amazing that we start the conversation with this, and I absolutely love the fact that you were sort of imagining you were with us all those years ago. Junk Club happened in a basement in a Georgian hotel that was built for royalty but had kind of fallen by the wayside since then. I mean, it sort of felt like it was the last scene somehow or the last real scene that I'd been involved with. Junk Club took its clothes from H&M as much as it took its clothes from the Army and Navy store. It was a mix of goth and post-punk and other and I don't know, all those guys were and are very good friends of mine. Um, these new Puritans, the Horrors, they're kind of my favourite band still. And it was very formative. And just to add, I think it was a very Essex place because Junk Club made its myth bigger than it perhaps was at first by dragging in Londoners and dragging in music journalists on the train and kind of selling itself in that very Essex way. Mm. I mean, yeah, and again, to the point that even random teens from other countries were like, oh, my yeah. God, this place, South End, sounds so glamorous. <laughs> Just in retrospect. It, oh, you know, it is. It still is very it, much so. Yeah. So, well, you know, let, let's get back to the topic at hand. So the Essex man as a concept was created in the 90s and was described as young, industrious, mildly brutish and culturally barren, as well as incredibly right wing. What role did Essex Man play in mainstream politics? I mean, Essex Man was sort of the icing on the cake of Thatcherism or the victory dance at the end of, you know, a decade of political success. I mean, Essex Man specifically was invented by the journalist Simon Heffer, the Telegraph columnist, in a Sunday Telegraph editorial, which he didn't actually put his name on. It was accompanied with an illustration of a quite small four-headed man in a shiny suit who had bought his council house from the depiction. It had a Sky satellite receiver on the outside of it, and I think he had a shiny motor and he was holding a can of beer. So that kind of tells you the story of Essex Man. He was aspirational, but he was sort of celebrated and kind of lampooned for that aspiration. I think Simon Heffer said he based Essex Man on Neanderthal Man. There's that very British thing of identifying something that is perhaps new and useful to you politically. Conservative Party certainly uh, relied on that sort of idea of aspiration for many years. But also, you know, let's, let's not pass up the opportunity to take the mick out of this person because they're sort of, they're, they're rising above their station. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess so. You've mentioned Thatcher a bit already, but um, Essex Man didn't kind of come fully formed in the 90s. You know, Heffer didn't kind of dream it up out of nowhere. So you mentioned in the book as well. So yeah, Thatcher had a lot to do with it. But the deregulation of the city of London also kind of mm. created the politics of Essex as we knew them back then and to an extent now. Like, what, what did you mean by that? I think Essex people start to be noticed in the 80s and 90s. But I think the process starts a bit sooner. I certainly spoke to 
people who identified with Thatcher deeply, who first started working in the city in the 60s and 70s, as the city started to slacken a bit out of its old traditions of bowler hats and umbrellas and, you know, going to the right school, checking each other's ties and things like that. But certainly the 80s is when it starts to really, I think what you have in Essex, you have a more established population because Essex is a place that really starts to fill up with people in the early 20th century. The railways kind of bring them into new towns like Basildon and Harlow. Also, suburban developments grow out of huge housing projects, almost DIY housing projects called the Plotlands, where people actually literally built their own homes. And on top of that, suburban enclaves kind of spring up. And I think by the 80s, you just have, you have everything in place, really. You have this new kind of English community, in a way, that's has its roots in in London, in working class London, but maybe doesn't want to work on the docks anymore, maybe doesn't want to work in the factories anymore, but does want to make some money and, and improve material conditions. And so I think it, there's a groundswell in the 80s and it's noticed before Simon Heffer really. And it's not just the city of London. I think, you know, there's this idea that anyone can go out and make a bit of money because those people who are making money from the city of London need their houses done up or want to get their driveway paved over or, or something like that and so you have Harry Enfield's loads of money who actually gets almost to the top of the charts with a shtick that's basically a guy waving notes around who's from the sort of metropolitan Essex fringes and even before that you have Abigail's party that depicts Beverly who's like a monstrous figure of upward mobility it's a slightly mean character really because she doesn't quite know you don't put red wine in the fridge and things like that. Sort of saying that this person, you know, has perhaps come too far up the ladder too quickly. But So this kind of story is being pinned to Essex already in the 60s, 70s, before, mm. you know, the 80s pomp. The county hasn't had a single Labour MP since 2010. And even in the 97 landslide, it got six Labour MPs compared to 10 Tory ones. And in 2019, it became entirely Conservative after spending some time flirting with UKIP. Why is Essex still so right-wing and do you ever see that changing? It's interesting. I, I mean, I suppose I started this project to almost ask that question. I started reporting on Essex when I lived in London. I'm, I'm from Essex, but I started to come back to report on places like Thurrock and um, Clacton. And UKIP was actually formed near Clacton in Frinton. Just to ask why, you know, you get these pockets of Essex that traditionally were very Labour, especially when they were formed. So Basildon, the new town that's built on Labour principles, is faithful to Labour until Thatcherism. And even then, it's actually very close. That's why we have Basildon Man and, and Basildon as a bellwether, is because it was seen as this place that has those two stories. It's got aspiration of wanting to sort of move in to a private home, but it's also got social housing. It's also got um, working class jobs. I think as times moved on, those areas have perhaps, you know, been shorn of their jobs, really. I think everyone used to work at Ford in Dagenham, is what people tell me. That's been decimated through the years, and there's only kind of specialist um, factories now. And I think what you get out of that is this movement away from collectivity, movement away from unionism. But the story is, well, I can still make it, but I'm going to perhaps make it on my own, and I'm going to and I'm going to buy a house. And I think right to buy has a lot to do with it. Home ownership is very high in South Essex. In Basildon, the numbers uh, shot up in terms of home ownership and 
in a place that was um, associated with social renting, but also places like Castle Point, which is an area of, of Essex that is full of um, people maybe a hundred years ago building their own homes and creating this idea of home ownership. That place now has the highest property ownership in the country. And I think if you, so if you mix all that stuff up and also Essex was a conservative place, like a kind of small C conservative rural place before you have this London influx into it. So I, I kind of was trying to think, like, how does Essex go back? I always thought maybe the places that would vote Labour again would be Thurrock and maybe Basildon. But I'm looking at those places now and I'm thinking... I think the post-Brexit years kind of shifted things quite a lot in those places. And, and the fact that they are post-industrial, it's hard to see. There are jobs there. There's a huge Amazon fulfillment centre for precarious jobs. And there are moves to unionise that Amazon, but it's it's very, it's kind of much more ad hoc. So I kind of see Essex going from blue to red more in places like Colchester, I think, where Pam Cox, a really interesting academic writer who is standing, that I think maybe it's like the story of the country. I think the liberal parts of Essex like Colchester and maybe even there's some wavering in some constituencies in South End. Those places, you could see a shift. But in terms of left versus right, I think maybe, you know, the, the right wing home ownership element has kind of won the battle for now. Mm. And I think so. This is something you've touched on already a bit without without saying the word. But um, I feel like we can't talk about Essex and politics without talking about class. So in the book, you write that people from Essex are, I quote, often viewed as the nation's id, its rawest and truest essence. Could you tell me what you meant by that? In writing and talking about Essex, I was often realising that I was um, writing about the Essex that other people saw or the Essex that the media saw and what Essex might have been useful for in the 80s and 90s. I look at the way Essex voters were written about and even the way a kind of reprehensible figure like Marc Francois uh, was written about. But when he first came along, he was almost goaded into, you know, behaving like that because he was an Essex MP. And so he's written about in those terms. And so it's almost like I'm not saying he was he was invented himself. He wasn't trained up to be, you know, quite the, the kind of um, shouty commons figure who kind of makes throat slitting gestures to Theresa May but I think there is this idea that Essex you could kind of like call it as you saw it you could sort of say things abruptly or say things that perhaps more managed people wouldn't say I think perhaps that is an Essex characteristic there is definitely an abruptness a kind of you know, it's it's just maybe perhaps it's something that's come out of working class London. I'm not sure it's always a rudeness, but there is something where, especially in South Essex and parts of South Essex, you just want to get to the point. But I think this gets pinned on Essex quite a lot. Whereas actually, I think there is this movement away from those kinds of sensibilities anyway, countrywide. I mean, the, the rise of banter certainly is not just an Essex trait. But I think, again, Essex is used to tell this story, um, mm. especially in the 90s. There seems to have been a moral panic People talking about, you know, there were, there were articles about Volkswagen not um, naming its new car Sharan um, because it was too associated with the vulgar um, Sharon from Birds of a Feather and things like that. So there are kind of, I mean, that, that was actually overturned by um, Volkswagen in Germany, but there are sort of weird way that Essex panic starts to kind of permeate in society at that time. I love the idea of the Essex panic. <laughs>
so you interviewed author Sarah Perry for the book about Jaywick, which is the most deprived town in England. And she told you, I quote, people are very proud of Jaywick, but it's a perverse pride. People are very proud of coming from somewhere that is considered to be unliterary, unbeautiful, unartistic. So is this defensiveness from the people of Essex, a kind of Millwall type, no one likes us and we don't care? Yeah, and I, th- I think people like it, actually. And I can't speak for the people of Jaywick, but I can perhaps speak from the people near where I'm from in Leon Sea, South End, maybe even Canvey Island. And that they're, you know, and I think perhaps it speaks to the fact that these parts of Essex, which are, are by the sea, you know, near marshland, often at the end of the line, they do feel like, you know, there are a lot of islands in Essex and they can, you know, feel like islands in themselves and you know, we're okay. We're okay here. You, we don't really need your, your judgment or we don't really need to be accepted. And I also think, I don't know, it's a, is it a kind of punk thing or a sort of like slight transgressive thing among people who identify with that? I do know people who think it's a bit of a shame that Leon C has been so gentrified because mm. for a few years, I do know the, the Millwall quote was kind of quoted to me about people saying well that's why the house prices you know aren't going up so much and that's quite good but now they have so we'll see maybe that's changing hmm. yeah I actually go to Leonsi quite often to swim and it's really nice and, yeah. and I'm actually yeah I mean entirely selfishly obviously because I'm not from there but I'm like I would like it if no Lon- no more Londoners could find yeah. out about it because I'm actually <laughs> very happy going yeah and I'm actually saying you know, as someone who's lived in Britain for quite some time now I was aware of the fact that obviously a lot of English people look down on Essex but what I'd not realised until reading your book is that it's not a new phenomenon at all. So you write that in 1700, writer James Brome described people who lived in Essex as, I quote, rustics, abject and sordid, <laughs> which I regret to say did make me laugh a lot. I was like, please tell us what you really think, James. Where did that image come from? I do think that Essex just being next to London, I mean, comparatively anyway, a lot of the time these writers might be coming to Essex from London and they and it might be the nearest sort of agricultural place to comment on in a way. And I think that that can't be discounted. But I also think the extremity of what's reported about the Essex character uh, might lie in this thing called the Essex ague. Well, it was malaria. It was um, malaria that was localised to Essex. People avoid Essex like the plague and apparently um, servants are paid more to come out there, um, you know, to manor houses or whatever. And there are fewer and further between in those areas. Apparently priests didn't want to come out to the local churches so much so that it was called kill priest country because there was a much higher mortality rate. There's a scientist called Mary Dobson who's done a lot of work on on the Essex ague and it really did... um, result in, you know, a lot of deaths and just a lot of sick people. I mean, Defoe writes about it quite well. Defoe writes about these farmers who, I mean, he meets one farmer who's had more than 30 wives and he meets them all up in Essex and drags them down to the marshland, as, as Defoe reports it. And he asks what happens when one of them dies and the farmer says, well, it doesn't matter, we just go and fetch another. Again, it's there is this kind of abrupt, uncaring... Um, very matter-of-fact, quite devilish sort of caricature that's forming even in the 17th century there. And I can't help but think that the Ague and just the marshes themselves, which were were seen as complete wastelands that were to be dumped in and to 
to put prisoners in and, and things like that. You know, these things kind of work together and, and create a caricature much, much further back in time that I, than I first assumed. Mm. And so actually, so as time went on, Essex ended up becoming the home of Britain's first nudist colony, a vegetarian colony, a pacifist community farm and England's first temperate colony. So was Essex quite a free place then where people felt they could try whatever? Because people found them a bit weird anyway, so why not? I think it, it has to do with land, really. There's so much land up for grabs. Essex has a quite bad 19th century in terms of agriculture. You have a very industrialising mega city just growing right next to it, sucking in workers. You have crops failing and the general um, agricultural depression is, is felt very keenly in Essex. You, you have grain being imported from other countries that is taking out farmers in the county. So farmers are just selling off their their fields. A lot of those fields are bought up by people with pet projects and a lot of those projects are utopian. So you have Tolstoyan communities, socialist communities. You have projects that are trying to rescue inebriates and alcoholics and and the general poor by setting up worker colonies, which does sound a bit colonial in a way. I mean, they are colonies and it is a bit of, you know, it's a kind of mini Australia. But there was actually a lot of good that these places did and the people involved in them did talk of, you know, again, it's a kind of idea of upward mobility because if you're at the very bottom and you come away from that and you can perhaps feed your family for the first time or perhaps it puts you on the right path. And, I, you know, I haven't gone into the research of seeing how well all of these people did after that. But, you know, there is this general sense of um, of utopianism there. So Essex, because it's emptied out, becomes a kind of blank canvas for those kinds of experiments. Well, actually, so very much on that note, I think we should probably talk about the kind of massive influence London has had on Essex. So I was fascinated in the book by the bit where you talk about the the first East End day trippers who would go down to Essex, you know, again, because like trains had started becoming more of an affordable thing. And the fact that people in South End and around just really hated it, like, did not enjoy Londoners mm. kind of coming down for the day. So what was that relationship like in kind of the past few centuries? I mean, that's when I started to see the spark of Essex being, A, the industrialisation of London, especially on the fringes of Essex and in Essex itself at West Ham, which was part of Essex back then and also be the advent of the railways bringing people out very quickly and actually very cheaply because there were cheap fares put on for workers. Southend, because it's a new place, because there's nothing there before, it starts to become a quite bawdy place and there are things, because of the demand from the Cockney and there are many, many East Londoners who just need to get out of slum living, it's seen as a place where East Londoners can come and dance in the street and get a bit drunk and maybe go to the fairground. And so surrounding that, there's this more established Essex, which is looking on in a kind of horror. There, there are many kind of cartoon depictions of the masses coming out, quite a lot of judgment. But I mean, I suppose the Cockneys had the last laugh because soon after thousands come every bank holiday, there are lots of houses built. And there's lots of, I suppose, places for people to stay temporarily, but then suburbia starts to be built um, as well to house people who who want to come there for good and so um, the East London trace has never really left I mean when I when I used to go to Southend United every week the opposition supporters used to sing you will support West Ham because it's true <laughs> there's there's this kind of mm. migration out from that area of East London that supports West Ham it, I mean 
and it, and it hasn't really stopped. I mean, they used to call Canvey New on Sea. I mean, perhaps it's stopping now. Perhaps houses are a bit too expensive. We'll see, but it's definitely still, you know, a thing. Hmm. Rashi, could you tell me a bit more about the boundary between London and Essex? Because the creation of Greater London in '65 meant that actually a fair chunk of Essex suddenly became London. You know, was that border always quite porous? And also, what what did that mean for the sense of identity of people who were technically in Essex and then found themselves to be Londoners? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that really fascinated me when I first started writing about Essex and then going on to start the invention of Essex, is this idea of the border changing so much. And I think the reason is, again, to do with housing. So you have huge estates being built in what was formerly Essex, like the Beckentree Estate in uh, sort of Barking and Dagenham and all of these kind of housing projects around there. All of these things make something that was called London over the border. You know, this idea that the city was just breaching the traditional border and something needed to be done about it. But there are parts of Essex on those borderlands, like Romford, that have never really kind of thought of themselves as London. And there was even an MP a few years ago in Romford who wanted a referendum on the subject shortly after Brexit, whether Romford could, you know, remain Greater London as it is now or go back to being part of Essex. Which, oh, I remember that, actually. Yeah, yeah that was quite fun. Yeah, oh. I mean, it's kind of faintly ludicrous. And it never did happen, but it's a very real thing. I think the fact that it still has an Essex postcode perhaps doesn't help, you know, mm. those areas like Ilford and Romford. It is a bit confusing still. And I think so. Like, I feel like we can't finish this without mentioning that your book is actually only one of several recently published on the topic. So Sarah Perry, who we talked about earlier, wrote Essex Girls last year. Um, and Caroline Crampton wrote The Way to the Sea in 2019. So is Essex having its moment in the sun right now or is this a coordinated attack? <laughs> I think it might. I mean, it feels like a kind of uncoordinated, coordinated attack in that, like, perhaps it's a reaction. I think, I mean... I sort of started to think of this phrase recently, like Essex sells, because it's true. Like, whenever I'd mention Essex to an editor, they want me to write about it. I think perhaps in the years after the rise of The Only Way is Essex, that kind of created maybe something in artists and writers from Essex to try and look at it, you know, because the stereotype had come back. And actually, I thought The Only Way is Essex, I was kind of fascinated with it. I wasn't really trying to counter it in a way, but I do think there was this idea that there's only one Essex. And so I think people like Sarah Perry, and that's a fascinating book. I really love that book. It really kind of captures that kind of duality of Essex, the city and, and, the, and the kind of backwater village. I think in the 2010s, um, TOWIE sort of made way for UKIP and Brexit a bit. I remember Nigel Farage launching a campaign at the Sugar Hut at the behest of Mick Norcross, who used to be an, a character in The Only Way is Essex. And there was the, so this side of Essex was getting a lot of attention. And so I think perhaps um, there was a kind of, it's not really a coordinated attack, but it's a sort of like, hang on, you know, how do we get here? Uh, or hang on, there is another side, or hang on, you know, I think there's quite a lot of people out there doing it. And there, there are quite a lot of good arts institutions around Essex um, now. And I just think perhaps it's matured in that way. It's not just A roads and pop bands in new towns. <laughs> and I guess finally, is that what, what is the one thing you wish people understood about Essex? I think it's that there are many Essexes. And I think people in North Essex, if there is such a place, 
would agree with me. And they're often very annoyed that I'm always banging on about um, the Essex south of Chelmsford. But I'm sort of talking about the Essex in adverted commerce. But there are many, many Essexes. And I think this comes out of it being so close to London. It comes out of it being kind of a patchwork of different ways of living, whether they be new towns or commuter suburbs or agricultural areas like the Denji Peninsula. There are many Essexes. And so I think it's just worth going out there and finding one that you quite like or don't like so much and sort of exploring it. Yeah, but that's definitely made me want to go back to Leon C again. This was all fascinating. Thank you so much, Tim. Thanks, Marie. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. I'm Marie LeConte, and you were listening to The Bunker. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Marie LeConte. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey, a proud Essex native. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.